Wiser podcast. Conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hi, I'm Sarah Nuttall for the Wiser podcast. In today's podcast, Timothy Wright talks about the little-known South African graphic novel Rebirth, written by Daniel Browd and illustrated by Joshua Reiber. Rebirth is part of a small and fascinating cluster of vampire culture centered on Johannesburg. Wright discusses with sharpness, wit, and a vivid analytical imagination of his own what the figure of the vampire can tell us about the contemporary city. This podcast is part of a larger project on mutant Johannesburg, which sifts through the science fiction, fantasy, comic books, and other subgenres of Johannesburg literature, looking for imaginings of life that tap into the strange, non-linear logics of the city. The scene is a stormy summer's night in Johannesburg. We are at a mansion in the wealthy older suburb of Westcliff. Here, we are told, the last four remaining vampires in the African continent are holed up. We enter the mansion and find not seductive cape-wearing noblemen, nor terrifying bat-like creatures. Instead, we get four very ordinary beings. These vampires, it turns out, are sick. Too weak to hunt their prey in the streets, they instead fuss around the house. They bicker, they smoke, they complain, they sulk. One of them throws up in the toilet. The scene is drawn from a graphic novel entitled Rebirth, written by Daniel Brody and illustrated by Joshua Reiber. Although the graphic novel is still very much a marginal genre in South Africa's literary scene, Rebirth has some good company. Since at least the mid-2000s, there has been an explosion of pop culture and genre fiction in the country. Comic books, science fiction, fantasy, works populated by mutants, zombies, superheroes, familiars. The film District 9, the novels Zoo City and Moxieland, the comic book series Quasi, these are just a sprinkling of the more well-known pieces of what is on offer. These are works that all look at South Africa aslant. They offer social commentaries, but they also offer ways of imagining the tap into the underbelly of the South African psyche, into its hidden anxieties and its various secret desires that have not found expression in public discourse. The vampire story I opened with is a prime instance of this. Self-published in 2012, the book is now almost impossible to get hold of. This is a deep shame, since it is a perfect instance of the kind of profoundly insightful pop culture work I am thinking about. Easily able to be read in a single sitting and hugely enjoyable, this book unpicks a whole variety of social contradictions in South Africa. Vampire fiction makes for a particularly fascinating case study, partly because the vampire is such an overdetermined figure. We already know, or think we know, what the vampire is an aristocratic being with a strange animal magnetism who lives of human blood, is immortal, and can turn humans to vampires through a single seductive bite. In many ways, the vampire is the perfect figure for the colonial enterprise. The canonical vampire of European literature, Bram Stoker's Dracula, 
arrives by ship in Yorkshire, carrying coffin loads of Transylvanian soil, with the intention of turning the English to his own race, of colonizing England bodily. In the African context, a wonderful study by the historian Louise White documents hundreds of oral tales from Central and West Africa in which white settlers are figured as vampires, except instead of fangs, they use needles and pipes to siphon blood from black bodies, which they then turn into pills that enable them to survive on the African continent. Isn't it then almost too obvious to set a vampire story in South Africa? What new could one possibly say? Quite a lot, it turns out. Rebirth does at some level stick to the script of vampire as colonizing aristocrat. The novel's backstory is a clever re-scripting of South African history, in which Jan van Rubik is the originary vampire who lands in the Cape and spreads the vampire gene. We get flashbacks of him in the 1650s, hard, formidable and imperious, cutting a path through the ocean to the VOC station at the Cape. We see him seducing and then turning a young company woman. We see him finally murdered by the very person he has turned, enraged at what has been done to her. But it is too late. The vampire strain has taken root. The heart of the book, however, is not with Van Rubik and the Cape Colony, but with the sickly vampires we meet in, the tw in 21st century Johannesburg, his distant descendants. Let me start by unpacking the disease that is killing these vampires, IDV, or immunodeficiency virus. This virus, we are told, is transmitted through the blood, laying waste to the body's immune systems. It has killed millions around the world over the past two decades. Now, I don't think this is a crudely veiled HIV-AIDS narrative. Rather, IDV is a device that helps the novel foreground some of the contradictions latent in the classical European vampire. This vampire, the kind of vampire we see in Van Rubik, holds himself aloft from the grubby world of mortals, an elevated Apollonian being who seduces and feeds at will. Yet at the same time, this vampire is entirely dependent on those on whom he feeds. He cannot create his own food, but relies on an unending supply of blood drawn from the human masses. This means that, despite the sense of autonomy and purity he projects, the vampire is at all times infiltrated with otherness, with other bloods, that most intimate of bodily fluids. With the conceit of IDV, rebirth foregrounds the way these vampires are embedded in networks, caught up with and dependent upon a multitude of other beings. This is not only because they are infected with what they see as a human disease, a disease that should not affect them but nevertheless does. It is also because, in their weakened vulnerable state, these vampires find themselves in a world in which they cannot simply do what they like but have to negotiate and hustle. We see this in their feeding. Too weak to hunt in the classical style of the vampire, they have negotiated a deal with the local prison warden to feed on troublesome inmates. Their feeding sessions in the bowels of the prison have no hint of empiric romance about them. They are desperate, frenzied, and animalistic. Furthermore, their disease forces the vampires to medicate themselves with pills, parodic analogues to ARVs. Medicine, of course, is one of the surest signs of one's dependence on a complex social network. I shouldn't have to take this crap. I'm a vampire, one complains. 
The vampires, in short, have become vulnerable in a particular way that confronts them with their own dependence upon an entanglement within networks, social networks, economic networks, medical networks, criminal networks. One powerful way to think about this is as an exploration of whiteness. The historical situation of these vampires, after all, is that of a previously impervious minority who could act with impunity, suddenly faced with limitations and vulnerabilities that they had never considered, suddenly plunged into the midst of a social world in which their attributes no longer make them special. In becoming susceptible to the virus, they are suddenly caught up in a common world with others and have to consider themselves not a race apart, but rather part of a common race. There's a haunting line in the film Interview with the Vampire. The world changes, we do not. Therein lies the irony that kills us. This gets to the essence of the vampires in Rebirth. The vampire is a static form of being. Vampires desire to persist and prolong themselves. But with their elongated lifespans, fixed diets, and attachment to a certain self-image, they are particularly ill-suited to change. The central plot point of Rebirth revolves around the vampire's attempts to engineer a cure for themselves. Here, I think the book makes an incredibly clever move. The cure they seek is not a cure for vampirism, the virus with which they have been infected against their will and that has turned them into monsters. No, the cure they are looking for is rather for the IDV virus that is weakening them and preventing them from living in their accustomed manner. IDV, in effect, counters their vampirism, rendering the vampires weaker, mortal, and generally more human-like. Some of the most visually striking panels in the graphic novel foreground this ironic failure to recognize their own condition as the disease, taking us into the cellular level of the bloodstream and showing the vampire viral cells as they colonize a human body. I don't want to spoil the final plot twist, but I do want to conclude by pointing to some of the ways of thinking that I think the narrative opens up. First, there's the powerful resonance of blood. Blood is perhaps the most intimate of all bodily substances, and it is consequently the way we imagine our most intense social relations. It is the way we talk about our intimate connections, blood brothers, our familial genealogies, blood lines, and in a toxic form, our race, blood purity. One thing the story does is direct us to stop seeing blood in these mythical terms as the substances binding groups together and sealing off intrusive outsiders, but instead in material terms, as something that moves horizontally between bodies, perforating boundaries and creating networks of entanglement. Blood becomes something that connects people of different groups and classes and races together, exposing relations of dependence and exploitation. The second point I want to make is more topical. Back in 2016, I published an academic article focusing in large part on rebirth. At that time, I was fascinated by its unusual blood imaginaries, which took me back into the history of blood transfusion and racial thinking. But the intervening six years have altered the resonances of the book for me. We have been through, or rather are still in the midst of, a major global pandemic that has brought to the fore issues of our vulnerability in the face of a viral form that our technologies cannot quite keep pace with or contain. 
Most people now agree that we have to in some way learn to live with the COVID-19 virus. At the same time, we are experiencing an ever-increasing frequency of catastrophic climate events, events that are hitting us hard in South Africa, but that are also hitting everywhere else, including the US and Europe. In his recent book, The Nutmeg's Curse, Amitav Ghosh writes of the tendency of the wealthy West to see itself as insulated from the worst effects of these global phenomena. It is a sense of immunity that arises, arises from the idea of the intrinsic superiority of the West. The reality, of course, is that the West is not insulated at all. To the contrary, Western countries have by and large been those worst hit by the pandemic, while the very countries that the West has stigmatized as backward have been able to draw on their histories of resilience to counter the virus more effectively. In particular, the abilities of countries in the global south to recognize and accept the fragility of their own healthcare systems, argues Gosh, is what enabled them to take decisive and prompt action while the West dithered. The author Daniel Brody says his primary intention was to make the vampire vulnerable. This vulnerability is something the vampires are intent on eliminating. Something the novel might direct us to think about is the ways in which ideals of invulnerability and immunity, usually thought of as unquestioned goods, can take on a sinister turn. This is where I think the Joburg vampires of rebirth link up with the global politics of insulation taken up by so many countries in the West, and, indeed, by wealthy enclaves outside the West. The vampires in rebirth cannot, or rather will not, accept their own vulnerabilities, their own entanglement in the world of common and global human concerns. Rather, they see the disease as a merely human problem, an external threat that they need to keep out so that they can get back to the business of being vampires. Such global phenomena as the COVID-19 pandemic enjoin us to think more carefully about what it means to live in an interconnected, globalized world and what it really means to find a cure. To live in the world, as these ailing Johannesburg vampires suggest, is to live entangled within networks of fellow beings. The wealthy countries of the global north have realized over the past two years that it is not possible to simply immunize oneself and shut out the rest of the world. The politics of insulation simply does not work, and to persist with it is to adopt the position of these deluded Johannesburg vampires, seeking the wrong cure so they can return to their old, extractive lives. As a final brief point, we might think about the meaning of Johannesburg, the city in which I am recording this podcast, a vampiric city of immense inequalities dotted with islands of extreme privilege that attempt to insulate themselves from a vast sea of precarious life on which they, never, on which they nevertheless depend for cheap labor, among other things. Johannesburg might serve as a microcosm for global enclaving, but it is a microcosm whose contradictions cannot be avoided. Perhaps Rebirth's smartest move was to choose as the locale in which to place its vampires the city of Johannesburg, a city in which the politics of insulation is easy to practice but impossible to pull off. <laughs>